Sego, Sewagwego. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to our Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name podcast, focusing on Haudenosaunee cultural topics recorded on Haudenosaunee territory. Our podcasts are produced by Aboriginal Legal Services with the technical assistance of Humble Man Recording. My name is Lisa Venever from the Mohawk Nation and the Wolf Clan. I'm the coordinator of the Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name program and the host of this podcast. Welcome to the Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name podcast series. If you would like to learn more about our organization, Aboriginal Legal Services, and the programs and services we provide, please visit us at our website, www.aboriginallegal.ca. And if you feel inclined and would like to make a donation, you can click on the word Donate, located at the top of the homepage of our newly updated website. You can also visit us on Facebook at Aboriginal Legal Services, Toronto, Canada. This is the Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name podcast series. So here we are with Alion Hyayas Hearn, and um, he's been with us before on our podcast um, talking about Remember when we talked about the spirituality of the cross? Yep. That was a real good one. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. And we also talked um, previously about midwinter teachings. Yeah. Um, today, however, we're going to talk about uh, birth from the Haudenosaunee perspective. Yep. And uh, there's just so much to learn about um, the beginning of life from the Haudenosaunee perspective, where should we begin? So, um, I guess for me, like looking at, you know, all the things that I've been taught and, um, especially like through my mother, because, um, when I was young, um, my mother made a decision to birth at home. Mm -hmm. So she, she made a decision for not just me, but my siblings and my older sister that she wanted us to experience that and to be a part of like the birth of my siblings so from that point, it kind of went into like, okay, well, what, what sorts of preparation things do we need? Um, what sorts of things are we going to see and experience in that birth? Um, and it really like was a pivotal moment for me in um, understanding like not just birth itself, but understanding a woman's body, understanding, you know, what's what I'm going to see, what I'm going to experience, what I'm going to feel, and really how powerful and how special women's bodies are. And having that respect, right, seeing my mother go through that and, and being just so powerful and and her being able to accomplish that was just like a monumental thing for me as a young boy um, and, and having that experience. But there was a lot of challenges too because, you know, like we're all raised like in a modern colonized way, right? And me growing up, I actually was raised like we weren't open about things like that, like in my family. We weren't, we weren't able to, to ask questions about a woman's body and we weren't able to really ask about sex or sexuality or anything around that area, right? So it was really taboo and that's, and that's products of colonization in the church. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's like that sinful, dirty thing, right? Yeah. 
So having, having, <laughs> I remember this, like having to get prepared for the birth at home for my siblings. Um, I remember we worked with a midwife who was a very close friend of our family's, who actually was a cousin of ours. And she was a midwife. And she's very infamous midwife. Her name is Gudji Cook. Yeah. Um, you've probably heard of her. Yeah, I know Gudji Cook. And, yeah, and she's a, she's a cousin of ours, of my father's family. So I remember I was probably 10 years old. And this was, mind you, this is the first time I ever had this conversation. And she went off about women's bodies and the vagina and all these things. And I was like, I was so like <laughs> shell-shocked um, being a young boy who had never had any kind of experience or any, been able to ask any questions about it. And she just went through the whole process, and that was the first time. I was really shocked, but it was really good, like, to be able to be open and have that conversation, right? So that helped me a lot. And then so having that experience with my, um, with my siblings, which would have been my youngest brother and my youngest sister um, of the five of us, it really opened my eyes to, like, not only, like, cultural aspects, but just in general of how powerful women's bodies are. And um, mm -hmm. and then from there, growing up and getting into the culture, kind of tying in like the the biological sense of birth, right? And you know the the biologics and the the scientific side, and then tying that into the culture, it just helped me so much in seeing like just the the understanding and the knowledge and the teachings that our people had. So that's kind of like for me where everything started. Um, like I said, like growing up with pieces and growing up in a longhouse or growing up with the traditions, you don't always have that association with like natural world or, or with like real concrete, like biological stuff. So as I got older, it also um, helped me so much in understanding the culture and teachings and why we talk about, talk about these things and why it's so important and why it's so, so special to our people. So that was a, that's where mine kind of started. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and then, um, and then from that point, having my own family and having my wife, who also had poor experiences, like with our first daughter um, in, a, in a hospital, and then into our second, son, our second child, um, just not having good experiences with the hospital and, you know, feeling rushed and feeling like you're just, um, you're just like, a, like on the assembly line, right, of births. Yeah. Um, she yeah. really had bad experiences. So I was able, like, because of my experience with my siblings, it's not that I, I pushed her or it's that I helped her make that decision. It was I was able to support her in that decision of wanting to be at home. Mm -hmm. And even though my, my wife didn't necessarily grow up traditional either, but she wanted to be in control of her own body. And so as a partner, as a husband, uh, I was able to support that in her and, and able to, you know, be there for her. And that's something I find nowadays is really a challenge, right? Because there's so much fear and there's so much, um, like, scary, scary, like, negativity around birth uh, for especially young girls and for women. And then when it comes to the husband, there's not a lot of education for men and how to support their partner if they make that decision to be at home or how can we support, how can we be there? Because on the male side, that's, like, one of the most... One of the most, um, uh, what do you call it, helpless that a man will ever feel is in birth. Yeah. And nobody talks about that, like what that's going to be like for the men. Mm -hmm. We focus on the women, which is you need that, but nobody focuses on the partner. 
nobody focuses on what he's going to go through or or she, you know, like mm -hmm. whatever the partner's going to experience too because they got to be there to support. And how can they support if if they're not taught or talked or included in all of that? So I was really fortunate that my mother did that for us and, um, mm -hmm. you know, showed us all of those things and got us to experience it and, you know, really take that fear away from, you know, birth and all those kind of things. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I was very fortunate with that. So when you think back to when you were um, the young boy and and you finally witnessed a birth, do you remember what that felt like, seeing that? Yeah, I remember. So I had a lot of responsibility, which which helped me, right? Because any child within the culture, any child within anything, it's that feeling of being included, right? Like you're included in something so monumental as the birth of your own sibling. So I remember... I had a lot of responsibility as far as, like, I was a fire keeper. Um, I was, like, the medicine keeper. There was all these things I had to do. But when it came time to the time of the birth and, you know, seeing what my mother was struggling with and what she was going through, I just remember thinking, like, like this is amazing. There was a little bit of fear there. Mm -hmm. But my mother was just this, like, powerful being that she took that all away from me. And it was almost like this comfort, right? Like, like my mother could, could live or, or experience anything and live through that um, because of what I was able to see her do um, without, like, without, like, a doctor present, without, like, well, there was there were safety measures in place, of course, like ambulance and all that, but for her to do that on her own in her own home, it was, like, bringing me back to, like, the, the old ways, the ancestors, like, how they, they would have given birth, right? And having the support of the family, having the support of, her own sisters, because her sisters were there. I remember the house was full of people, so it was almost like this feeling of community, like bringing somebody into the world was like, everybody is involved in that, and everybody was there. And I remember seeing my father, like my father was right there. So it kind of gave me that as a as a male, as a, on the male side was, you know, he was that supportive role, and I got to see that. So it was like this really whirlwind of emotions of of things that I've, things that I went through just, just experiencing that and seeing my mother and, um, yeah, it was really a mixed emotion and mixed feeling, but I just remember having this like powerful feeling like, man, we could do anything like mm -hmm. having our family together, having the cousins and the, the siblings and the father and everybody there. It just was this powerful feeling of, of community. So that was just a real comforting th thing. Like, and then seeing the child be born and um, there was a little bit of shock because, um, like seeing the blood and seeing the water and it's not like the movies, right? In the movies, the baby's always so clean and, mm -hmm. and like they got a nice color to them and, but seeing like a baby really be born like bloody and discolored and all of that, um, mm -hmm. really like was a shock, but you know, just, just seeing how it all played out was just amazing. And then, um, so my other responsibility too, which we'll get into like the cultural side was, um, to do the birthing speech. And we always think of, like, birth is really a ceremony. Like, it's a big ceremony. So there's a lot of things that um, go into that and link into the ceremonial part. Um, and then so I got, I got had that opportunity in the language to share the, um, the, the uh, birthing speech and hold. I was, like, one of the first ones to hold my, my younger brother when he was born. And the first words that he heard was those words in my voice. And then same for my youngest sister, too. Like, I was the first one to speak to them. Mm -hmm. So that was, like, for me, as an older brother, it was, like, it was almost like, like they were my children, too. 
So then growing up, I always had that feeling with them, right? Like I was responsible for them or I had that deep connection with them because I was there when they were born. So that really helped too. So it was a lot of things I had experienced, uh, you know, being a part of that. Like inclusion. Inclusion, absolutely. That, that's the most important part. Yeah. Um, and I guess with inclusion, it takes away that helplessness feeling. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And and throughout the throughout the years too, like I've had a lot of couples come um, to me and my wife because my wife is really big in a community on sexual health and sexuality and and promoting birth, and she's a registered certified doula too um so she's had a lot of clients that come um you know the 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 women will come who are ready to give birth but then it becomes like this where i have to be included because where's the partner in all of this yeah. and there's always that struggle like how does he fit in how does mm -hmm. he be included in that mm -hmm. and how can he support his partner regardless of how it goes, whether it ends up in a hospital C-section or whether it ends up, you know, natural birth at home, how does he support that when he has no clue, like, what's going to happen or he's never had that experience? So I was, like, we're fortunate that I, I can also work with the partners um, and, and talk to them about what they're going to experience and talk to them about that helplessness. Because even though I grew up with the teachings and I grew up with that experience, when it came my turn and my wife's turn, I had that same feeling like, like helpless, mm -hmm. like there's nothing I can do. And as a man and as the male side, that's our job is to protect and to keep our partner safe. Mm -hmm. But now you're seeing them in like the most vulnerable state and, and they're like on the line of life and death. Mm -hmm. So it's like this horrible, like <laughs> this horrible, terrible, amazing, like beautiful experience that you're going through. And I think that more men need that need like support from other guy other men and other partners to say like no like this is what you're going to go through and everything's going to be okay mm -hmm. and whatever you know and it's like i find that a lot of the times when women are trying to make that decision whether to have their child at home or whether to birth at home it always comes down to the partner mm -hmm. because they're afraid right and so they can't fully support that decision for them to be at home and we always fall back on well it's safer at the hospital mm -hmm. it's sa it's safer to you know have doctors around it's safer to have nurses around because that's where we feel comfortable but it's all it's all just education right it's all just knowing and believing in our bodies believing in our partner's bodies and believing in the woman to you know whatever she feels mm -hmm. comfortable with and and how she's going to bring that child into the world well before we get to the the speech which i love it's very important um Let's talk about the um, the cultural foundation, the philosophy of of children coming to from the sky world, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's it's pretty fitting that you have all these sunflowers around too, because sunflowers is a big part of that. And and I'm just gonna I'm gonna try to keep it short because I know there's a lot of areas we gotta touch on. But in creation story, it talks about how when the creator first. Um, needed to light the world right when he first needed to bring light to the world the first thing he did was he created this big beautiful flower and he said that this is going to bring light to the world mm -hmm. and what he noticed was that it it was beautiful it had lots of light but it wasn't enough to light the whole world so eventually he asked the help of the elder brother's son to light his world but when he finished after he made that agreement he came back to the world and he looked at his sunflower and he says even though you don't have the responsibility to light the world anymore. He says, I'm still going to keep you. I'm going to keep you in this world. And he says, you're going to light the way 
for the coming generations, for the coming faces to come to this world. So it's almost like I, I picture in my mind, you know, like um, when you were a kid and you took a flashlight and you shined it in the sky. Mm -hmm. That's what I picture a sunflower is. And even in our language, the word that they call a sunflower is the galun hiaganile. And it's, it means it's looking in the sky. So I almost think of pictures like these flashlights or these lights shining in the sky because they say it's almost as if they're looking for those baby spirits. Because mm -hmm. the baby spirit is coming down from the sky and they follow the light of the sunflower to that family, to the mother, or into the womb, into the body. And what I was told is that three days before a baby is born, that's when the spirit enters into the, into the womb. That's when the mother starts to get all those feelings. Some call it Braxton Hicks or all of that. But it's really the spirit entering into her body. So those sunflowers, they have an important role. And the way I always seen it was a sunflower, it ties to fertility and, and even sexuality, right, and sexual health. And it's like um, the way I've always looked at sunflowers is families that I used to see in the community who had lots of children, Mm -hmm. You could see it around their home. They would have lots and lots of sunflowers planted because those sunflowers, they love children. They love being around those new babies and the new faces. And and I always shared that story of um, at the Akwazasana Freedom School where I used to teach, they had um, a daycare going. And one year they planted sunflowers around the daycare. And those sunflowers, I swear, they were like 14 foot tall. Mm -hmm. I've never seen sunflowers grow that big. Wow. But it's because they love children, right? They love yeah. being around those kids. So it's a part of fertility. It's a part of birth. It's a part of all those coming generations. And they just love being around that. So that's why a, lot, a long time ago, a lot of families planted that around their homes. Because mm -hmm. it was like, it was always, uh, you were always really fortunate a long time ago, right? To have a lot of children. Yeah. To work the farm or, or, <laughs> or just to survive, right? So that was a part of it was to have those sunflowers around those kids too. So there's a lot of like culture aspects that go into you know, birth and children coming and tied into the natural world and the sunflowers. Where does the um, the belief that the children choose the um, family? Um, so that's a part of that, like, it's like that ancestral spirit, right? Because they say, a lot of people we believe, right, the ancestors are old, like they're old people, but it's not necessarily true. Those young children, they come as like ancestors, Mm -hmm. So they have a power, right? They have a power to pick where they want to go or which families they're going to go to. So it's really their power. And that's also why there's a lot of old wives' tales about mothers, right? And and the things that they experience or the things that they're around, like saying, like, you can't be around certain things or you can't do certain things because that child um, has the power to choose to come here or not. Mm -hmm. So we have to be real careful, not just the mother, but also the father um, and the partner and the family of what they choose to be around during that time of the pregnancy because that child has the power to to not come here too. Mm -hmm. So I remember one of the one of my teachers told me like whenever you see a baby when they're first born and they're young in the teachings it says that we call them daksutta mm -hmm. and daksutta really means my my grandma or my grandpa because those children they're actually old they're not like brand new or it's not like they don't know anything they're actually really really old spirits. Mm -hmm. um, that have chosen to come here. So that's why it's like, it's like the opposite, right? When we hold a baby and we talk to them, we, that's what we're supposed to call them as like my, my grandfather or my grandmother. Mm -hmm. um, and then as they grow, right, they grow into now being like a physical being. Yeah. 
So that's kind of where that comes from. So I always thought that was pretty cool. And um, whenever my, my teacher was around, my kids, she would hold them, and she, that's the way she would talk to them. Mm -hmm. And they would light up, right? Like they could see them. They would light up whenever she would say that to them. Mm -hmm. And she said that's why is because they're really old, old spirits. They're not like, they're not really brand new. Well, that's a perfect place to, um, I think, start talking about the baby speech. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing that I was looking at when I started studying culture and language was, well, I always went back to the language, right? Like, what do these things mean? Because it was always explained, like, really brief, all of the teachings that I've ever had growing up in Longhouse. There was always, like, little pieces that we had here and there. Um, but as I started to research and, and really, like, come into my own in language and culture, I really found a lot of details that I was missing in my life. So I was able to develop that and build it. And one thing was this idea of the opening address that we always talk about. And people, when, we, when, when it was always explained about the opening, it was always like, okay, in a the language they call it Ohondo Galihuadehkwa. And Ohondo Galihuadehkwa means the matters that come before or some say the words before all else. Mm -hmm. But it's really the matters that come before. So taking that idea or, or concept or translation, we always thought that, okay, that means before a ceremony. It means before a social dance, or it means before a meeting, which is true, technically. But then I looked at it further to say, okay, well, the other thing that we're taught is every day, like every morning, we're supposed to be grateful. We're supposed to be giving thanks. We're supposed to be um, talking about our relationships. Because even that um, idea of was actually relationships too. Mm -hmm. So then that came in. So then I looked at it further and I says, well, when we talk about birthing speech, that's actually where it starts. So when we say the matters that come before, that actually means... That's the first words that's spoken to you when you are born into this world. Mm -hmm. So then it made more sense why we say, It's not just meetings or, or it's not just a day. It's actually the first words that's spoken to you. That's why in a, in a birthing ceremony, they say that when a child is born, you're not supposed to speak to them until that words is done. Mm -hmm. So when we do that speech, we go through... And we, we say that we introduce that new spirit, we introduce that new child to all of its relations. And that's not human relations, it's actually the natural world. Now you connect them to the world and to the natural, to nature, and to all the things that the Creator gave us before they even meet their family. And the thing I, is, I always say is, before they meet their mother, before they meet their father or their siblings, You've just introduced them to all of this world. Mm -hmm. And not just like, they're not like, they're not just like um, physical things, right? Or they're not just like metaphors. Yeah. We're actually tied to all those things. So when we do that speech, we're telling that child that this is all your family. And one thing that's real beautiful about that speech is we say that they're all happy that you made it here. Mm -hmm. And that they're so they're so in love with you already. It's mm -hmm. such a beautiful thing because that's one thing that every human being looks for, right? Every human being, no matter what nation or tribe or nationality or, or what your religion, everybody wants love. Yeah. So from your very first breath that you take on this world, you're already being loved 
by the grass. You're already being loved by the waters. You're already being loved by the trees, by the sun, moon, stars. All those things are loving you. Because how many people, how many families are born into families where there's no father? Are born into families where the mother's not in a healthy place or leaves them or abandons them? They're already into that place from the time they're born. So without human beings, we already have all the love we need from the natural world. Yeah. And then it's like human beings is a bonus for us. Mm -hmm. So that was really profound mm -hmm. to me to say, like, not just not just this is your world, right? But really, all of these things love you. And they've been loving you. Even before you got here, this is all your family. So when we go through that in a birth speech, that's what that really is, is saying all of these things in this world, they're alive and they care for you and they love you and they're so happy that you're here. And it just fe that feeling, right, is like, it's like the best feeling in the world because everybody wants love. Everybody wants to be included in something or be a part of something. So telling that child from day one is that you're a part of this world and everybody here cares for you. Everybody here loves you. And then it goes to your family. Now we introduce, after we do all of that, now we introduce you to your mother. Now we introduce you to your family. And then also we give your name. If there's a clan there, we give the clan. All of those pieces start to come in. That mm -hmm. child feels so special and feels so included from day one. Mm -hmm. That's why that, that ceremony and that process and that speech is so special. It's so important. And every time it, I, it's been done, it just makes me want to cry. And I remember like, what, having my experience, right? Doing that speech for my siblings, my youngest brother and my youngest sister. Then when my children came... My oldest son was able to do it for my youngest two children and watching him interact with them, watching him talk to them, um, you know, even before I got to hold them was like taking me back to being a young child and everything coming full circle. And like he made us all cry because he said words that I didn't even know he knew mm -hmm. and he was able to share that with his siblings. And then um, it was just a, a, a beautiful, beautiful thing. And um, it was pretty incredible too because... After, like, my youngest sister, I did her speech, right? Um, when she had her children, I was there again for them. So it was like, again, it came full circle. Mm -hmm. And, like, being the uncle now, not just the brother, now I was the, playing the uncle role for, you know, my, my nieces and nephews who were born. So it was just a, like our family just had this beautiful experience all around birth and the birthing speech and that whole ceremony. So, you know, I really, really thank my mother for giving me that experience and, you know, just including us in all those things. And, you know, she wasn't she wasn't the greatest about being open about, you know, our bodies and things, but she did what she could and she she gave us that experience however she could and, and it kind of pushed us to learn more and be a part of it and be more open about our own bodies and be more open about women's bodies too. And then it's, it's just a natural thing. Like it mm -hmm. became natural after that. Well, that is so beautiful to for a child to hear those words the first thing they hear. And do they understand? I don't know. Absolutely. I, I believe they do. Yeah. Yeah. And there's two things that I was told is that when we, when, we, when we die, when we pass away, we go back to our original language. Mm -hmm. And also, when we are born, we are born with our original language. So no matter what person or what nationality you are, what, what nation you come from, they say you go back to that. You start with it and you go back to it. Mm -hmm. So that's why me, like, whenever I hold a child, I, I don't care, like, what 
I don't care like what nationality they are or if they have a clan or a name or even if they're traditional. I speak the language to them because they say we're born with that language. Yeah. It's inside of us. Yeah. And then when we pass, we go back to that. Because I've, I've had experiences even in death where I go to speak to an elder who didn't have the language or who was a residential school product or who lost the language and they understand. Like, mm -hmm. And they start speaking again too when they're close to the end. Because mm -hmm. they tell us that. We go back to our original language. Mm -hmm. So that's why that language and the speech is so important. Not not like through our lives, if we had it or not. Or it's not to blame or judge people that don't have the language. But it's still important because that's inside of us, right? It's yeah. inside of all of us, yeah. um, our original languages. So that's why I think, like, even if you're not a speaking family, I get asked to go to a lot of births and do that speech for families that don't have anybody that speaks, right? And I think it's still important because that exists inside of us. So mm -hmm. that's that teaching that, you know, those children definitely understand. And then, and, uh, and I think when you were explaining that, talking to the baby and introducing them to the natural world, I was thinking if only everyone could be introduced to the natural world when they get here. Absolutely. And carry that connection with them, we would treat the earth better. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the thing, too, like, a lot of people kind of get depressed. A lot of people kind of get down on themselves because they'll say, well, I didn't have that experience. So, like, I, I'm not connected or I'm not connected to the world. But even after birth, all throughout the stages of our life, there are other ways that we can connect a person back to the earth and back to the natural world. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I always remind people is that don't worry about if, you had it as a child or not, or even your own children, because people start to feel guilt and shame right away is that, well, I didn't do that for my kids, so does that mean that they're going to struggle or they're going to have a bad life or they're going to have bad luck? That doesn't mean that. It's now there's other ways after you are born or even later on in your life. I've done ceremonies for grown adults where we took them back to their birth and reconnected them to the natural world, and they cried like little babies because... They didn't have that in their life. So we can do that anytime for somebody. Mm -hmm. Anytime. Mm -hmm. It's just like the names, right? Because a lot of our people didn't get names when they were small. Yeah. So it's the same process. We would take them, treat them like a child again, and restart, reconnect them back to their name, no matter what age they are. Yeah. So that's a real thing I, I want to emphasize is that it doesn't, even though so many of our people were disconnected that way from birth, it doesn't mean that you're you're never going to be connected or doesn't mean that you can't connect now. Mm -hmm. It's just, there's other ways that we can do it now. Mm -hmm. And cause that's a big question, right? When I start talking about birthing speech and ceremony is that, well, I didn't have that. I didn't know. And my family didn't know. And, and it becomes this shameful thing. And I don't ever want anybody to feel that way because it wasn't our fault, right? It wasn't anybody's fault that we lost or disconnected from those things or the culture, the language. I don't want anybody to ever feel ashamed of that. That was something that was forced on us. That was something that was forcibly taken from us. Yeah. So it's enough, right, that we lost it. We don't need to feel bad about it now. Let's stop judging and let's stop criticizing each other over that. Let's help each other find it again. And decolonizing ourselves is a daily struggle. Absolutely. You know? um, what about... Um, you know, people in 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 their communities, or if they they don't live in their their traditional communities anymore, what if they want to? And they're adults. What if they want to connect and do this connection at this point in their lives? Where would they go? 
to find the help. Yeah, so that's something you'd have to seek in your own communities. I mean, I'd love to be able to do it for everybody, but I'm only one person, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it is difficult because I find there are some knowledge keepers, there are some knowledge holders that have that judgment, right? That, mm -hmm. okay, well, you wanted to go live in a city, so you're out, like, you left, mm -hmm. and now you don't deserve this, and I don't think that's right. Mm -hmm. So that's why, for me, like, I don't care who you are or where you come from or what you do, like... I, f I feel everybody has a right to connect to those things. Yeah. So only for me personally, like I try to help anyone I can to to find that again. But unfortunately, uh, not everybody feels that way. And especially traditional people, um, we become real judgmental too and we become real critical. And I think that's a, that's a, that's a product of colonization yeah. too because traditional people were under the most, they were under the most pressure to to change who they were or they had to they had in the face of annihilation right they had to keep alive all of that stuff so also they became real protective and they became real exclusive of who they shared those things with because they didn't want to yeah harm themselves or harm anyone or have that exploited again so that's what i see is real difficult in a lot of our communities for you know elders and for knowledge keepers is now how do we open up it's like somebody who is abused or somebody who is raped or molested. How do you get them to open up afterwards? Yeah. It's the same thing with the knowledge keepers. Like, mm -hmm. like how do you get them to share what they know when they've been so um, protective of that and they've been so hurt over it too? So that's a hard thing. But me, I guess because as a younger person, it's a little easier because um, cause I don't have a lot of that. I was grown up in an open way with the culture and the teachings. Um, but I understand it and I've seen it and... Um, I try not to be that way with anybody that comes. So that's why I like promote, like, you know, let's connect anybody that we can. Because um, it's not really mine. It's not really my knowledge or my teachings or my culture to share or to hoard, like, like or to or to keep from people. Mm -hmm. The way I see it and the way I was taught is that that's, that's ours to share with anybody because it doesn't really belong to me yeah. anyways. And if we don't start sharing, you know, we could, you know, go to extinction yeah you know we Absolutely. have to we have to connect everybody to their identity yeah yeah but also it is it is still you still have to be cautious because there are still people who look to exploit those things too right yeah. so there are people who look to exploit the songs the dances the knowledge the teachings or to benefit or to gain profit you know there are people who do look for that so at the same time you do have to kind of be selective with the things that you share and who you share it with. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I get, I get some crazy messages sometimes from people that, you know, say, well, I want to I wanna take what you taught me and, and do, like, uh, make, make all these different things. And it's kind of like, well, there are certain things you shouldn't share too. So yeah, it's also about being cautious with that as well. So it's mm -hmm. kind of like a fine line that you have to watch. But that's why some things I really, I'll be open, right? And I'll say, I'm not going to talk about this. Mm -hmm. um, or I'll only share a certain part of it because um, a lot of that stuff too isn't, isn't meant to be shared publicly. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's kind of like a, a balance too of watching, you know, the things that we share. But when it comes to our, our own people or somebody personally that's looking to, to improve their lives, then I'm like, let's, let's go. Let's do it. Let's, let's help you in any way that we can. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So after we're born and we start to um, live on this earth, then what comes next? So I think before we jump that far ahead, 
I'd like to go back to talking also about conception. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, because everything starts before birth, right? And and it's like promoting and having the understanding and the teachings prior to starting a family. And that's the thing. There's a big gap, right, is that a lot of people now, they are families and, and couples, um, they they get pregnant and then they start they start their journey from there. It's like now I gotta start learning. But the problem is is that you kind of miss a lot of parts and it's kind of like you didn't you didn't have that understanding beforehand or you didn't have the teachings beforehand. So one thing is that whenever we start to teach our children, um, and going back to what I was saying earlier about you know like uh, colonization and and being ashamed or or feeling that there's something wrong with our bodies, that all comes from the church and colonization. It's like sex in our bodies is a sin, right? And it's like that idea is hard to break through, um, especially with our kids, because um, it's like being comfortable with having those conversations with our kids about healthy sexuality and healthy, you know, taking care of their bodies, even like masturbation in children. A lot of, a lot of families and parents don't know how to have that conversation. And I didn't either. <laughs> until like I, I met my wife and she was like open about everything and I remember even with our children I was so uncomfortable and I'd even tell her like don't talk like that like don't say those things to them but for her it was natural like no like this is a natural thing and people naturally want to feel good yeah and so our bodies naturally react to what feels good and so a child there's nothing sexual about what they do because they don't even know what that is all they know is that that feels good mm -hmm. so Taking that idea and, and looking at, okay, well, where in the culture do we start to see and promote that? And because for me, I had such a hard time talking about it or understanding it. So I went to the culture and looked and said, okay, well, where is it in the culture then that I can see where the teachings would be? And the first place that I found was they talk about in the, in the teachings of fire making and in the teachings of fire. So when I started working with the youth and the young children and with my brother and my siblings, we, we wanted a way to reconnect them um, through their change in life. So coming into manhood, coming into adulthood, coming into womanhood, what is it and what are the teachings that start that helps us to have a healthy transition into that you know new stage of our life? So the first thing that I found was the teaching was of fire. Mm -hmm. And in the language, when we look at fire, we always associate fire with the word ojile. And ojile, also is the root word in Gahwajile. And when we say Gahwajile, that means my family. Mm -hmm. But my family doesn't really mean my family. It really means my fire. So talking about having a family and the understanding of having a family comes from knowing how to take care of a fire. Mm -hmm. So in that promotion of, okay, the next stage in our life, when we, when we move from adolescence or when we move from childhood into adulthood, that's the big thing now. So that's the big thing now is that now we're transitioning from a child into an adult and the potential to have a family is there. Yeah. So now that the potential is there, how do we prepare for that? And so the first part is always the fire. Mm -hmm. So when I look at making a fire and I talk to young children, I always say having a fire or making a fire is just like making a baby. It's mm -hmm. just like having a child. So we talk about you know, the tools that's used for making a fire is the same tools of our body. So there's even a part of 
the fire making that we reference the male penis. Mm -hmm. And how do we care for, in a healthy way, the male penis? Mm -hmm. And then also, there's promotion of the different tools that's used is the woman's body too. So for a young boy, right, that's what he's learning is how to care for his own body, how to care for his own penis, and also how to care for a woman's body mm -hmm. and how to have that healthy respect for that body and for the tools that he's using. And when you use those tools in balance, you can make a fire and also you can make a child or have a baby. But also there's a responsibility that comes with that too, right? Mm -hmm. So once you make a fire, you're now you're responsible for that. You have to protect that. You have to watch it. You have to care for it. You have to feed it. And you can't let it go out of control. Same as a child. So that's where it was really big for me. It was so profound to say, this is how we have that conversation with our kids about, about sexuality, about our bodies, about, you know, about conception even, and about, about sex and having children and having a he healthy sexual life. Because it's all natural, right? So that was really big for me. You know, because my, my wife was so, like, <laughs> my wife was so bold with it, and she didn't care, and it, she just made it natural, right? And yeah. it still made me uncomfortable, but I had to find it in the culture, and it was the same thing. So that helped me having those conversations with my children, having those conversations with, you know, the community or, or you know, other other people and other the youth in a community about their own bodies and, and how natural and how healthy that is. So that's where I found it was in that teachings of the making of the fire. So that talks about from the from even before conceiving, even before having a relationship or a partnership. So in our culture, it would be the same way. Both young women and both young men going through transition, that's their first responsibility is fire. Mm -hmm. They're taught about fire, how to make fire, how to maintain it. Because once you make that transition into adulthood, right, now that becomes the thing. And I know for young men, you get crazy emotions, you get crazy feelings, you get crazy like sexual urges. So that's important is to first promote that respect before all of that all of that feeling comes. Mm -hmm. Because what happens if, you know, I don't want to say accidental, but what happens if that 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 young man now goes and makes a child or goes and impregnates a young girl? Mm -hmm. Is he prepared for that? Or are we going to start from there and try to prepare him? You know what I mean? Yeah. So has he been raised with that? Has mm -hmm. he been raised with that knowledge and teachings and understanding? And that's a big thing in all of our communities, right? Is that there's so many absent fathers. There's so many absent mothers. There's so many broken families. Or, you know, like families who are unhealthy. Or even families who are together that just don't have a healthy view of what family is supposed to be. Yeah. So to me, it goes back to that education ahead of time. And working with the young children about, working with the young people about, okay, now this is the way our bodies work. This is the way we are responsible, not only for our bodies, but also for our partners. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things that come into that teaching. So I really, really love that teachings about the fire. And it, it gets really funny too, because when we start working with young people about, you know, trying to make fire, it's difficult. Like it's really difficult to use natural um, you know, natural items and natural tools to make a fire because mm -hmm. we're so used to using the match or lighter. And that's kind of like our relationship, right, is that I want to make a fire now mm -hmm. and then I don't want to be responsible for it afterwards. <laughs> so, but when you've put a lot of work into it and a lot of effort into making a fire, it's like you appreciate that so much more. Yeah. So when we get into fire making skills, it's funny because 
the young men, because well, I work mostly with young men, but we do the same thing with young girls. Um, but young men, they're like working really hard and they're struggling and they're breathing heavy. They're even sweating. And I start laughing because I'm like, that's how it is when you start making a baby sometimes. <laughs> it's like a lot of work and it's difficult, but it's fun at the same time. And But we get to have that laugh, right? And you get to make it natural and make it fun. So right in the culture, it's all in there. And yeah. it's all promoted of sexuality, sexual health and all those things. And Mm -hmm. My wife loves it when I talk about this because she's such a big promoter of all of that. So mm -hmm. I'm always like mm -hmm. making her proud too when I get to share and be open about these things. And do you find that the young people are so receptive to these ideas they've never, maybe never heard before? Yeah, absolutely. And and it's for the same reason too because it's it's not like that shameful thing, right? Mm -hmm. And also for some people that still were raised with that like shame, shame of their bodies and sexuality, it kind of is that buffer, right? Like, okay instead of just talking openly about sex, because that might make some people uncomfortable, we're going to talk about the culture. We're going to talk about the fire. Yeah. And you can make your own connections to your body or to a woman's body or to a man's body. So, yeah, that's that's the big thing is, you know, some people still are, are raised or are taught that, right, um, to be uncomfortable with their bodies. Or a lot of young people never never even had that conversation, just like me. I never really had that conversation with my parents or really anybody. And... For me, it was like learning about sex and sexuality. That came from like my friends that I worked with, <laughs> mm -hmm. and they weren't they weren't like the best or the healthiest people to be learning from. <laughs> so it really made it difficult for me. So I, it was like really confusing time for me through my teenage years and my adolescence, and then. But I was unfortunate enough to have that experience with my mother to always know to have that respect for a woman's body. But then it was like, well, what do I do with all these urges and what do I do with all this pressure and whatever is going on in my life? So then looking at the culture, it's like, well, that's where it is. That's where there's so many different things. And they always said that, right? Everything is in the culture mm -hmm. and everything is natural there. So that's what helped me so much. And I was able to learn that and then connect it back to, you know, our own bodies and, mm -hmm. and how healthy and how natural and how beautiful like mm -hmm. life itself and our bodies are and women's bodies and men's bodies. It's just so, so beautiful. Like the things that we can do and the things that, you know, are just natural to us. So mm -hmm. that's what changed, changed a lot for me. Well, I think back to the way our ancestors lived in and, um, and how great it must have been to live their entire lives without shame yeah because there's no shame in the culture yeah absolutely yeah and even like even that too right when you look back on the old photographs or they talk about our people like a lot of our people were either nudists or naked or they were like the women were topless because they had that natural feel and they felt comfortable and also they felt safe enough to do that because the men and each other and the families they had that respect for each other and each other's boundaries. So, you know, you didn't you didn't have that like crazy sexual tension or you didn't have that, you know, like um like that taking advantage of or anything like that. And it, everything was just natural. Mm -hmm. And so nowadays, one thing that really you know, something that happened in the longhouse really bothered me back home was that, you know, the men were telling women like how to dress. So one thing that came up and one of the things like for ceremony is that, you know, women can't wear short skirts, women can't wear low cut shirts or, you know, there was all these things and women have to be covered up. And I really, I really like disagreed with that because I'm like, why are we telling women how to 
treat their bodies or why are we telling women what to do with their bodies? That's a colonized thing. Mm -hmm. So even in Longhouse, that was starting to happen. And the answer that I got was that, oh, it distracts the men. Mm. And I was blown away. I'm like, are you telling me like the men can't control themselves for a morning of ceremony and they're going to be distracted by a woman's body when the woman's body is natural? And a woman should be able to choose to dress or, or act or, or do whatever she wishes with her own body because that's her body. Mm -hmm. And now us as men, we're telling them what to do. So it was like this big thing. So even in Longhouse, we struggle with that too. Mm -hmm. um, and that's all, again, that, like I say, it's not our fault. It's just the products of colonization and that shame, right? Yeah. And not being natural with ourselves. And, mm -hmm. and even one big topic right now too is like the, the, the um, taking advantage of women's bodies and a lot of men who are you know coming out as rapists or molesters or abusers and things like that that's a real big thing in all of our communities right now and one thing that i found is that um in our communities first of all men aren't being taught to respect their own bodies mm -hmm. and so if a man doesn't respect his own body how is he going to respect a woman's body Mm -hmm. So that's where it's got to start too, right? Is It's not just about teaching boys to respect women. You also have to teach them first to respect themselves. Yeah. Um, and so that's a big thing is that I started to see women are pushing, okay, let's, let's teach our boys about women's bodies and how to respect it. But I'm like, no, it doesn't start there. It starts with his body first. Mm -hmm. If he has respect for his own body, now you start to promote the respecting of another's body. Mm -hmm. and a woman's body because it doesn't mm -hmm. just happen with men to women right it also happens with women to men it also happens with men to men mm -hmm. there are a lot of people in our in my community that a lot of men who were raped and molested by their own family members who were men who were of the same sex and and that was a real profound thing for me to hear and see is to say that that was happening a long time ago mm -hmm. so it all goes back to the respect of your own body and having that healthy relationship with your own mm -hmm. body first Mm -hmm. then you're able to res respect somebody else's body. So a lot of parts that tie into mm -hmm. that. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of education that needs to happen Absolutely. in our communities mm -hmm. around um, sexual health. Yeah. And birth even. Yeah. You know, but but fortunately for us, it's it has all been given. These These teachings are all there for us. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, we don't have to make them up. We were given them a long time ago. Yeah, it's just like going back to it, right? Yeah. Going back to the things that we were given. And, and um, yeah, like to me, it's all there. It's all there for us to learn. It's just, it's just opening up ourselves and saying, okay, where do we find that? Because even culturally, like me growing up, even culturally it was like a bad thing. Like sex and... And talking about sex and bodies, it was like a taboo. You don't talk about that kind of thing, even in the culture, even in the longhouse. So I always knew that that wasn't right. I always knew there was something wrong with that because I'm like, how could how could anything with our body be unnatural? Or how could mm -hmm. anything with our body be bad or negative? Mm -hmm. So that's where, that's where I started to look at that and say, no, there's got to be something in the culture that promotes this. There's got to be something in the culture that teaches us this, right? Mm -hmm. And so where do we find that? So that's what I was able to find. And I, lo I love sharing that whole part about it, for sure. And you know what? If it's in the culture, I know you'll find it. Yeah. Again, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, that's why I dedicate most of my life to not just learning yeah. or not just listening, but really understanding yeah. what's taught to us and really understanding how that connects 
not just to ceremony or, you know, because me growing up, everything was a metaphor. <laughs> everything was a metaphor in the culture. And it was like, okay, I get it, but there's got to be a real thing to this. Mm-hmm. Like things aren't just metaphors. There's real biological, sociological, scientific facts in our culture. That's how smart our people were. So that, to me, that became my life's work is finding those and understanding them and sharing them with people. So that's what really deeply connects us to it, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what I love about it. Well, I want to thank you, saying Yahweh to you for joining us and talking about birth and sexuality on this podcast. And we're going to continue this talk yeah. and we'll get to... Um, We'll get to other stages of life, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yep. All right, Yahweh. Yeah. Yahweh, thank you for listening to this episode of the Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name podcast, which has been produced by Aboriginal Legal Services and hosted by me, Lisa Venevery. There are 10 episodes in this podcast series. Let's meet again on the next episode. This has been the Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name podcast series. If you would like to learn more about our organization, Aboriginal Legal Services, and the programs and services we provide, please visit us at our website, www.aboriginallegal.ca. And if you feel inclined and would like to make a donation, you can click on the word Donate, located at the top of the homepage of our newly updated website. You can also visit us on Facebook at Aboriginal Legal Services, Toronto, Canada. This has been the Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name podcast series. Yeah.